Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. Yeah. Flip in your Bibles to Genesis 10 and you'll be caught up. Quick review. Here's where we're at in the narrative for those of you that have missed a couple. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world. Genesis 3 and 4, humans screw it up. Uh, In Genesis 5, we start looking for that Messiah that God promises will eventually take the authority back from Satan. Uh, And then in Genesis 6, we start to see uh, God's plan for a Redeemer getting challenged by groups of angels or sons of men that come on the earth and try to mess it up. God reboots things and finds one guy out of the thousands that had populated the earth named Noah. And he says, I'm going to start over with you and your sons. But as soon as they get off the boat, Noah builds an altar and makes a covenant with God. And God covenants back with Noah, makes rainbows. And then the next narratives we see are Noah's sons starting to do sin again. And that that corruption is still in human beings. It's still part of who they are. So God seems to have created all of creation just for a chance at people like Noah that he can walk with again and that he can commune with and build covenant with. And it's kind of worth it to God to put Noah's sons on the ark too because out of all these thousands and millions of people, he finds his servants, and that's kind of cool. So we're going to do Genesis 10 and 11 tonight, which uh, Genesis 10 is called the chapter of nations, and it is the Bible's account of how we got all the nations on the planet which is kind of cool. And I thought about trying to get like a big globe map, and then I figured that the DOG would uh, step all over it and it would be more distracting than fun. Uh, but you really can do a map, and pretty much this is the, the how humans spread after Noah. And then chapter, chapter 11 is kind of the same thing. Almost like chapter 1 and 2, we had God's creation, and then this chapter 2 is really focused in on humans. On chapter 10, we see the view of all the nations, but then on chapter 11, we see how God made it happen and this really kind of heavenly view of how people got spread out. So starting in verse 1, now, this is the genealogy or the genesis of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and sons were born to them after the flood. So we're starting another tolda, which would be another scroll that was part of the group that got taken with Moses. Uh, The Bible... uh, I thought this is kind of interesting. From here, as the first mention of nations and ethnicity, the Bible actually never mentions race once. Um, And people groups in the Bible are always by a nation that they're from or a language group that they're from. Um, And I tried to hunt and find things, and it really couldn't. And if you look at the history of race, it actually started in the 1800s, and it was a major area of study in biology. Uh, that popped up along with the evolutionary theory and that race theory and race relations and all that sort of thing is an outpouring of a uh, a scientific study of race with the belief that some races are more evolved than other races. But the Bible never thinks of it that way because the Bible doesn't argue for evolution. It argues that all people were created by God. 
Um, as I go into this, uh, I'm going to, because, okay, this looks like just a genealogy, but I'm going to pop throughout the genealogy. I'm going to say, for instance, the sons of Japheth in verse 2 are Gomer. Uh, Gomer is largely believed to be Germany, but I want to, instead of going into where I find each of these things, these are generally accepted things when you look at Bible scholars and linguist scholars. Uh, we also see later in the Bible that these things get mentioned and are mentioned with a certain area. There's also archaeological evidence that's outside of the Bible. So when they dig up things in Assyria and find a coin that says, um, you know, this is the Tiras or whatever coin, then you can start to attach words to what's going on in here. And then there's also linguists that have looked at these. So when you look at Magog and, and, and Russia, they have a connection to each other. So they come from all these different places, but essentially there's lots of places where you can go through chapter 10 and people will say this goes with that and this goes with that and this goes with that. There's a few, like when we get to Javan, I'm not going to say anything because there really isn't good evidence for it. So the only areas of chapter 10 where we haven't been able to confirm certain groups of people um, are areas where we don't know where they are, but there's lots of people groups that we don't see or haven't confirmed. Um, so there's some where there's some guesses, and I'll tell you where the guesses are too. A lot of the confirmation for chapter 10 comes from Babylonian, Assyrian, Egyptian, and in the uh, early 1900s, they found some Hittite records that have mention of all these nations and cities. So most of the time when Gomer goes and makes a city, he calls it the city of Gomer um, or Germany in another language. And so they're really not hard to find. They're really pretty direct. Um, or Tarshish later gets mentioned because Jonah, remember, goes to Tarshish. And then it's mentioned with a certain group of people. So you can kind of see what those are. And we now know that Tarshish is Tarsus and things like that. Um, the best critique of this chapter you can find is that there's only places where, well, aha, aha, there's Javan. We don't know where Javan went. Um, and the Bible doesn't seem to tell us, and we can't quite have unpacked it, which to me says that we might still find those archaeological records. But there isn't actually one that has been disproven anywhere. So, all right. Um, so the sons of Japheth were Gomer, Germany, Magog, Russia, Madai, Javan, Tuba, which is Tobolsk, Meshech, Moscow, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphthad, Togarma, and the, I'm not getting that right. I'm not going to worry. Verse 4, the sons of Javan were Alicia, Tarshish, which is in Spain, Kittim, Cyprus, and Dodorum. And these are the coastland people of the Gentiles were separated into their lands. So whoever is writing this is writing at a time when the Hebrew people have already been formed. And we're going to see that all of these genealogies actually go to a son called Eber, which is the father of the Hebrews, um, and then Abraham, of course. Uh, so all of those were Mediterranean Europe, according to everyone according to his language, according to their families, according to their nations. So what we just saw was a list that most people believe, based on linguist patterns, goes from India all the way through Europe and, and the Mediterranean, uh, which leads to a question of all these language groups. Um, I have no idea about linguists. I'm not a linguist, and I don't understand their field of study. So it's normally pretty invisible, but I guess to the linguists, this is pretty obvious that these are language groups that we're speaking about. So that leads to the question of where do language groups come from? Because it's really rare for a kid to be born into a family and speak a different language. So the Bible's leaving something very unexplained, which in chapter 11, we're going to see the explanation of it. But all of a sudden, you've got all these people that go all over these different places that speak 
familial languages. In other words, all the sons of Japheth seem to be in the same linguistic group. And the sons of Ham, which we get to in verse 6, are not the same linguistic group. And when I say linguistic group, I'm not just talking about having family words like whoobie. And like, normally evolutions are believed to evolve over time because families speak baby talk to each other. And then they grow up, and then they, that goes on to the kids, and you form distinct groups of people based on how people talk in a familiar way. However, with language groups, we're talking about totally different sentence structure, which the brain just doesn't do on a normal basis. It takes years of study to switch your nouns and verbs around, unless you're Yoda. Um, language groups really don't switch that way, but we do have like, like English and Australian English and American English have been devolving away from each other, but they're still the same structure, where Chinese and English are not even the same structure. They don't put things in order. So that's kind of interesting. All right, I'm sorry. I got way too into this. I'll warn you ahead of time. I committed myself to moving fast, but I was like, this is really cool. Hamites populated Africa and the Far East. They're likely using water transport to get that far away, but all the sons of Ham are in areas that are further away from the Middle East. The sons of Ham were Cush, which is Africa, Mizraim, which is Egypt, Africa being south of Egypt, uh, and put in Canaan, which is originally the area where Israel is. Remember in the Old Testament, Joshua primarily fights Canaanite groups. In verse 7, the sons of Cush were Sheba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, Sabtekakta, and sons of Rama were Sheba and Dan. The queen of Sheba we know was also from Africa. Rama's kids seem to be distinct as they're split into various African groups. We really haven't attached which groups go with which of those names. But we don't know that Sheba, Sheba is going to be a queen from Africa that later um, hangs out with Solomon. Cush begot Nimrod. And now we see a name here where the genealogy kind of stops and, and talks about Nimrod. I think that's because in chapter 11, the whole narrative is around Nimrod. So Nimrod began to be a mighty one on the earth. Remember being a mighty one on the earth or a, a giant on the earth wasn't a good thing a few chapters ago. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna, and the land of Shinar. So one guy has tons of cities that he's gathered together. He's formed the first empire uh, after Noah's flood. Verse 11, from that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh. So why did he leave Babel to go to Nineveh? And we'll see the answer to that in chapter 11. Rebotheth, Ur, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Calam. That's the principal city. So the sixth son of Cush gets a special place in the list of nations, Nimrod. Uh, Nimrod in the Hebrew means let us rebel. Um, so he is a guy that gathers people together to rebel against God. Mighty is a word that gets used twice. Usually that's a cue that it's significant. So you should look up mighty when you get to your Strong's Concordance, and what does that mean? Um, mighty hunter here does not mean he's out very good at hunting deer and wild grouse. It means he hunts men. So he actually enslaves people. We know that from archaeological records. And he's actually the founder of two great empires, both the pre-Tower Babylon and the Ninevite people, which show up later in the Book of Jonah. Hunting here um, in the rabbinic tradition, if you look at the Jewish account on this, uh, that, that Nimrod was mighty at convincing and ensnaring people to rebel against God. And the, so he was a mighty hunter, ensnarer of people. That's not a compliment. He's an offense before the Lord, which is why a phrase gets brought up around him. Uh, Nimrod is the hunter of men. 
I thought it was kind of interesting. I thought, well, if Nimrod's the hunter of men, then it's interesting that Jesus, when he picks a metaphor, he doesn't call us hunters of men. He calls us fishers of men. And there's a difference between a hunter and a fisher. A hunter pursues, tracks, goes into people's homes, uh, invades. Um, but fishers kind of put their bait out there and wait for the fish to come to them. They lure with, with the right lures. Um, and I thought it was just a different way to deal with people that was kind of a contrast there. All right, but that's beside the point. Um, Nimrod's the first to use rulership to, to, for earthly gain after Noah. He's the first to build these massive cities. Babel seems to be the headquarter of all these cities, and we have uh, evidence that in Revelation 17 and 18, at the very end of the Bible, Babel becomes the home base for the Antichrist. Um, and here it's the home base for Nimrod. So it's where the nations of the earth gather to rebel against God. Uh, and then he gets Nimrod to, or Nineveh to, and we'll see this in a second. Verse 13. Mizraim begot Ludium, and they... Animimum, leha. I'm okay. I could just skip these, but I'm really committed to every single word in the Bible, and that we go through every single word. So I'm taking a shot at them. But you can look up the pronunciation. A good digital Strong's concordance. You can also get the pronunciations if you really want to. Nehabim, Naphtohim, Pathrusium, and Calcium, from whom came the Philistines and the Caftorium. Uh, we know the Philistines are major players because David fights them. They settle along the coast of Israel on the Mediterranean. Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn son. Uh, Tyre and Sidon are the two key cities of the Phoenician people. And Heth, the Jebusites. Remember, Jerusalem was, in it, it was the city of the Jebusites. They were there before um, Joshua came and conquered. The Amorites, there's a nation of Amor that's east of the Jordan River. So we're kind of covering... Uh, the Israeli region right now, and the Girgashites, that's the Galilee area. And then we see some that have moved away from Israel a little bit, the Hivites, the Archites, Archite means neighbors, and the Sinites, many believe these are the East Asian people that descended from Sinai. So, and again, that, was, that wasn't like a conclusive thing, there's just people that theorize that the Sinites were the early Chinese. The Arvidites, the Semurites, the Hamathites, and afterwards the family of the Canaanites were dispersed. Canaan then had 11 sons. Uh, the DNA of Canaanite people actually looks similar with modern DNA research to Mongolian and Native Americans people. The border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you go from Gerar as far as Gaza, and then you go towards Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zebulun, and as far as Lasha. These were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands and their nations. So the language groupings are still kind of a powerful collector. And then we get to the third son of Noah, Shem. Verse 21, and the children were also born to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber. And now here we see that we're going to see a genealogy that goes from Shem to Eber, and Eber is the father of the Hebrew people, uh, their great-grandson. Uh, and we also see the focus here is the messianic line. This gets to be interesting, and, and we do that. The other piece is there's a lot of sons and daughters here that aren't mentioned. Uh, so that's a kind of a curious thing in chapter 10, that we don't see grandchildren and great-grandchildren. We just see these massive people groups. And then the Bible kind of moves on, and but they will focus in on Shem and get as far as great-grandchild. So, I'm sorry, the children of Eber... 
the brother of Japheth the elder. The idea that God doesn't always go with the eldest is going to keep coming up in the Bible. God doesn't really care if you're the eldest son or the eldest daughter and often picks his people from not the eldest son or daughter. Sorry, Grant and Levi. And I don't know if you were you the eldest? No, so. <laughs> Verse 22, the sons of Shem were Elam, which are the Iranians or the Persians, Madai, are the Medes people, and Iran and Iraq later had Indian immigrants or people that moved over to India too. Um, Asher, the Assyrians, that bumps, the Assyrians are the ones that bump Nimrod out of Nineveh later on. Arphaxid, which is the, uh, that's the line of Abram and the Hebrews. Lud, which are the Lydians, Asia Minor, Turkey, and Aram, the Ar- they actually are the Arameans, uh, which is Damascus um, in Hebrew, uh, which we know Damascus is in Syria. 23, the sons of Aram, who's the fifth son, were Uz. Uh, We know that Job, later on in the book of Job, Job is from the land of Uz, but we don't really know where that is. It's somewhere in Arabia. Hul, Gether, and Mash are Faxad. Now, this is kind of, this is, again, this is odd because the genealogy starts with the fifth son, and then on verse 24, our Faxus is the third son. So when we see Hebrews writing genealogies, they're trying to say something, and they say it by putting focus on things. So they'll go off on this tale, but then they'll come back to where they want you to look. So our fact set is where the genealogist wants us to look. Begot Salah, and Salah begat Eber. And to Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, an unfortunate name. And for in his days, the earth was divided, and Peleg means divided. And the brother's name was Joktan. Uh, we don't know what the divided thing is about. There's theories around that Peleg was a divided person. Uh, I think it's a thought to think that Peleg had a peg leg, but that's another thing. And then other people think that might have been a time when plate tectonics were crashing and the world was just splitting up into different places. And then the most common theory is that Peleg was the one that kind of headed the family during the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, which is where we're headed. Verse 26, Joktan begot Almodad, which is a great name for fantasy adventures. Shelatheth, Azamarapheth, Jera, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, maybe an ancestor of the Dickers, but I'm not sure about that. Verse 28, Obal, Abimel, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. Jobab. All of these were the sons of Joktan. All of these are also known to be Arab nations today, so various groups of Arab people. Notice of all the places on the earth, the ones that are further away are larger people groups, and the Middle East is kind of packed with people groups. There's a ton of them that don't spread out. And that's going to cause a lot of conflict when people groups, especially of different languages, are in small geographical areas, you see warfare and conflict, which is going to be the narrative of the first half of the Old Testament. Most of that warfare is going to rage until David and Solomon bring peace to the region. These were sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, Oh, did I skip 30? Verse 30. And their dwelling place was from Mesha as you go towards Sephar, the mountain of the east, which is Saudi Arabia. These were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, according to their nations. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, in their nations, and from these nations were divided on the earth after the flood. So if this is accurate, if the Bible's got these right, there should be evidence of these to bolster what comes before this then gains validity and what comes after this gains validity. 
So archaeology often focuses on chapter 10. When it digs things up, it quickly goes to chapter 10 to see if they just found something that would be here. Thus far in archaeological history, there's no significant evidence that anything in this chapter has been disproven. But we're clearly on history here. So even people that wonder about the Bible, is it reliable, is it not? This is a transitional chapter from what could arguably be poetic to what is could arguably be not poetic. Because everything that goes forward from here is really rooted in a historical narrative. I hope that you can, my thought is one through nine is also written as historical. And that's why this chapter gets to be such a big deal. If you show something here to not be accurate, it brings into question everything before it and everything after it. So why don't we teach this, given that there's nothing that's contradicted this in all of archaeology, why don't we teach this in schools? And part of why we don't teach this is you'd think in world history class, you'd start in chapter 10 of the Bible. Here's world history. Here's how these nations got founded. But that also adds validity to the Bible itself as a narrative. And at least in the United States, we've tried to separate or not teach these pieces and we've attached the historical parts of the Bible to the religious parts of the Bible because the Bible does that too. They're not separate. This is God's narrative and what God's trying to do on the earth. So if you teach this, you're essentially teaching God's narrative in a public school setting. So we don't teach this. And I feel a little robbed, like this is cool history. We have the history of the world right in front of us, which made me think, it's kind of cool that there's so many places on earth right now that to just get together and do this and open up God's word or slap it on printed pieces of paper, to do that is illegal in parts of the world. There's people that would give their life to be able to sit down, open a Bible, and not be attacked for that. And I think that's pretty cool. Just a thought. And be able to open the book and see what God says about history um, so that we can figure that out. So some other things that are kind of interesting here that'll pull out... The Bible in chapter 10 says there's basically three people groups on earth. There's Shem's line, which is the Hebrews, the Arabs, and the Middle Eastern cultures. There's Ham's line, which is the Ethiopians, Egyptians, and the rest of Asia. And then there's Japheth's line, the Greeks, the Romans, and the Europeans, and maybe the Indian cultures. So that sweeping kind of area there. It's interesting later in the Bible that we also see three people groups getting addressed on a pretty regular basis. So that three people group idea is constant, at least through Jesus's time. For instance, there are basically three synoptic gospels and one gospel for each group. The book of Matthew is written for the Hebrews and the Arabs or Shem's line. That's the line of Christ to Abraham. When you look at his genealogy or Eber, he makes 60 references to the Old Testament and quotes the Old Testament over 40 times in the book of Matthew. Then there's the book of Luke, written to Japhes Liner, the Grecan culture. Luke was trained in Greek, um, and he was hired by a, a Roman. And it traces in his genealogy, he traces Christ all the way back to Adam and explains how Hebrew customs and Greek names all work. So he actually takes time to explain the Hebrews to the Greeks. The book of Mark, on the other hand, remember in Genesis 9, Ham was going to be a servant of servants because he looked at his dad when he was naked, gazed upon him. Um, and Ham, being the servant of servants, has no genealogy whatsoever because it doesn't matter in that in the book of Mark. And it paints Christ as a servant again and again and again and explains how Christ came to serve too. So there's a gospel for each of these three people groups that paints Christ in a slightly different way that opens it up. And then there's the book of John and he's responding to Gnosticism and it's not the same kind of thing. Then we get to crucifixion. At the crucifixion, Christ was accused by Shem's line, the Hebrews. He was crucified by Japheth's line, the Romans. 
and he was served by Ham's line, if you count Simon the Serene carrying the cross up the hill. At Pentecost, Acts 2.5, the gospel is preached to 3,000 Hebrews in Israel. The next uh, narrative is the gospel is preached to a eunuch that's heading back, uh, or a eunuch being a servant is preached, and Philip actually serves the servant and comes under and becomes a servant of servants. And then the next narrative is Cornelius, the Roman, getting saved. So even at Pentecost, you see, see someone from he, the uh, Shem's line, Japheth's line, and Ham's line. And you see this again and again as you look at the New Testament because they're trying to say God came for everyone on the earth. And everyone on the earth is three people groups, according to the Hebrews. God seems to have an ongoing concern and love for all three of these people groups. It's easy to say he only loved the Hebrews, but when we get to Leviticus, we're going to see that there's big parts of the, he- the, the, the law for the Hebrews that actually lets people from other parts of the world become a Jewish person. And God didn't see the law of the Jews as he saw that as the law of all humanity. And anybody who wanted to become part of Israel, all they had to do is come and serve the Lord. A lot like when we get saved today. All we have to do is say we want to be a servant of Jesus Christ. And anyone from anywhere in the world can be part of that kingdom, which was God's initial intention. We have time to do another chapter tonight. Genesis 11. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there and they said to one another, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Because this is what people do when they want to have a party. Let's make bricks. I'll explain that in a sec. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens or is unto the heavens, depending on your translation. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole world. Wait a second. God's command to Noah's family was spread out over the whole planet. Yet you got these humans saying, let's not spread it all all. Let's gather together and let's not be scattered over the face of the earth. So we've got a massive problem again, is humans are picking a path that's very human and it's not what God asked them to do. So... The first 10 chapters are a method of writing events where you have a thing and then you flash back. Genesis 1, Genesis 2. This is the same thing. Genesis 11 is like a flashback. What made all these people split up in the first place? And we're going to see God's perspective in Genesis 11, where in Genesis 10 we saw kind of the earthly record of what happened. So we're going to see the details get filled in. God's plan of redemption, even if the world is again turning into a contested group of people, we see that plan. Verse 1, now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Um, up to chapter 10, all the names make complete sense in Hebrew. Remember, Hebrew is three-letter combinations that work together, and we were able to look at the names of all the first, from Adam to Noah, and it had kind of almost a little concealed messianic message there. Once you get past chapter 10, not all of the names make sense in Hebrew anymore. So linguistically, if you really pick this apart, it doesn't always work. Shem was unlikely part of the Babylonian tower building, um, and one had to wonder where all these languages came from. So out of Shem comes a language of Hebrew. So most people believe that Hebrew was the one language that they're talking about in verse 1. And that's because the names all made sense before, and Shem's line continues to make sense. And then we know that Eber spoke Hebrew because he was Hebrew. 
one has to wonder where all these other languages came from, and that's my thing with like kids just up and speaking new languages. It doesn't happen. They did have a couple in Africa that were, um, or I'm sorry, that were African American living in Britain, and they had a kid that was actually white, and they tried to figure it all out. The wife swore she hadn't had sex with anyone else, but there was just this transitional thing. We've seen that that happens sometimes on the world. That what we think is racial is not necessarily racial. There, it, it is some. There's genetic combinations that come together and don't come together. But humans can all mate with one another and make offspring. We are all of the same kind. But this language thing's not so easy. You don't just up and speak a new language. It doesn't happen. Not only that, language is kind of a miracle. When you look at babies, they're learning almost 6,000 words um, a year and up to 20 or 30,000 words a year as they get older. We are learning machines and language is one of the things we learn from infant all the way up. Most animals don't do that. Even the most animals that are the most linguistically prone have maybe 10 to 12 guttural sounds that they can make that have some sort of implication on what they want, right? So a bark, a whine, you know, I think our DOG, I can't see his name because he's being so good right now. Um, he maybe has six or seven. He's not the smartest animal out there. Um, but we love him very much. Amazingly, um, we can sit and then when if we look at this in Hebrew or we learn Hebrew, we can actually read the word of God in the language that he gave it to us in, that one language idea. Verse 2, it came to pass, they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. From the east, then, is eastward from Turkey, where the ark was landed. Um, and to modern-day Iraq would have been probably there. I've read, honestly, I read whole articles on what this meant. But to me, it's just not that hard. If the Tigris and Euphrates came out of that part of the world, I think they just followed the river, which would have gave them a flat area to transport and a place to feed and water all of their animals. It makes tons of sense to me. So I don't need to really wonder what that is. Uh, they follow, I think they just came down the river and then they hit the, uh, like anyone would that follows the Tigris and Euphrates, they eventually hit a large body of water um, where they can do shipping. Shinar then is later on in Genesis 10.10. 10. We know that that's where Babel is or Babylonia is going to start to be founded. Verse 3. So in other words, they came out of where the ark landed and there's a group of them that kind of plopped down in Babylonia. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. When you put brick and you seal it with mortar, you are waterproofing by all ancient standards. That's how you waterproof and seal a granary. That's how you waterproof and seal a garden pool. Uh, that's how you do things that are waterproof, which makes sense in human thinking. If you just got done with a major flood, your major instinct is to build things that are waterproof. <laughs> Even though God promised that he would not flood the earth again, it makes tons of sense to build a tower just in case where you can get up in that tower. So that's one theory as to why they're building a tower. Uh, the most common theory, of course, is because they wanted to change that skyline of their first major metropolis area. Let's build something that's a, an honor and a glory to human beings. Let's say that we are amazing. Um, a third reason why they might have done that, um, oh, I'm getting way ahead of myself. If they're saying unto the heavens, um, third reason we could do this is we know that most astrology is a descendant of Babylonian religious cultures. So they would study the skies and to get up closer to the skies, 
would help them get away from the lights of the city and could be amazing observatory. The Tower of Babel is traditionally thought of as trying to reach heaven. I don't think the Babylonians were that stupid. They knew that the sky was way high up there, but to be unto the heavens or high up into the heavens makes a lot more sense. Making permanent routes is what they were not supposed to do. They were supposed to travel. In Genesis 9-1, they were commanded to fill the earth. So when they're building things with brick and mortar and they're waterproofing, they're not doing what they need to do. Another indicator that we can get from deduction here, clay in the uh, Fertile Crescent uh, would have been easy to find for brick. What wouldn't have been easy to find for brick is massive amounts of wood and stone. So if you settle in Babylonia, you would have had to have massive economy systems in place to get the wood for the fires and the stone down from the mountains of Iraq. So they would have had to have not just, this isn't just a little encampment with a few tents. This is an economy that gets built fairly quickly as the people populate the earth. A complex society with roles uh, and resources. Verse four, they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. They're trying to actually fight against what God asked them to do. So in 10.8, Cush begot Nimrod, the mighty hunter of Babel. Uh, God, these people are led by Nimrod. And in God's perspective of why they got split up, notice that Nimrod doesn't even get mentioned. Nimrod's pretty low on God's priority list. Um, but he's the one leading these people. Um, the Tower of Babel is actually mentioned by Herodias, a Greek historian, uh, hundreds of years later. It's thought to have still been standing. So the Tower of Babel didn't necessarily get destroyed. They just stopped working on it. Uh, but Herodias actually mentions it, and he mentions it as a first person in that he saw the Tower of Babel when he was in Babylonia. So it's interesting. I am still waiting for the news article to come out that they feel like they found the archeological ruins of this massive tower that would have been built there. And there's other people believe that the Tower of Babel and the Hanging Gardens of Babylon are actually built on the same foundations or would have been built on the same foundations. Um, but the Lord, verse five, but the Lord came down to see the city. So again, we see another little passage where the Lord's actually walking with people and talking with people. He walked with Noah, he walked with Adam, but he actually came down and checked things out. So this could be a Christophany. In other words, Christ being born to Mary is not the first time that God walked on the earth. Um, or it could just be God the Father walking on the earth and taking a form like his angels do later on throughout the Old Testament. Came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they will all have one language. And this is what they begin to do now. Oh, this is what they begin to do, comma. Now, nothing they propose to do will be withheld from them. In other words, God's not exactly smiling on this little maneuver. Come, let us go down. We see another plural reference to God here in the Hebrew. And there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. A um, couple things that I pulled out from that passage. Now nothing they propose will be held from them. Somehow humans are capable of lots of amazing things when we get together, um, but they're not always things that God smiles on. Just because we can build skyscrapers doesn't mean God thinks that is anything important in human existence. 
And just because we can build major cities and these massive things and we can gather together, um, God doesn't necessarily think that's the, the coolest thing. Somehow or another, splitting the languages up fits into God's plan. And one of the things, and I want to get into languages too because I got way carried away with this. I think it's kind of fun to look at this idea that the world still has multiple language groups. And one of the primary functions of worldly human beings is to negotiate with each other across these language groups. And it's actually been in place for six, 7,000 years that part of what we're doing is trying to navigate these cultural and linguistic differences that we have. As the world gets more and more unified, Revelation says at the end of days, all of humanity will be united once again, except for a remnant of people that believe in Jesus Christ. That eventually we will work out things. The Antichrist himself will say, peace, peace, and there will actually be a season where there's no warfare and no conflict on this planet under the Antichrist. Then all everything goes to hack. But it seems like from beginning to end, when all humanity gathers together, the thing they do is they rebel against God. But when humanity's fighting with each other, there's room for people to worship God in those spaces. They're not focused on getting the Christians gone or getting rid of all the Jews on the earth because they've tried to kill all the Jews now a few different times throughout human history. They keep failing and a few Jews manage to survive each of these holocausts that they have to go through. That said, in Revelations, it's not the Jews that are going to be, they're going to try to eliminate. It's the Christians and the Jews that they're going to try to eliminate. So this idea of splitting people up allows for the world to be populated. It allows for people to stop trying to rebel against God because now they got to figure out how to even do trade with each other. Um, and it actually creates room for nations. One of those nations is going to receive God's law. And God's going to have one nation that he honors and blesses that can be a light to the world. And later on, he's going to bring one savior through that line that can be a light to the whole world despite language groups too. Okay, languages. The Bible gives us a one-sentence explanation of one of the most confounding mystery for evolutionary scientists. How did languages come to be? They're an impossibility. It seems like it's impossible to, to get into this topic for a few hundred years as scientists came from the Middle Ages to 1866. This was debated. It was seen as one of the primary proofs of the Christian faith until the Linguistic Society of Paris actually outlawed this topic. We are done as a scientific community. We will not study where language came from anymore. And that was largely the end of that study until recent years. We've started to get back into it, but they're coming to the same conclusions they did back in the 1800s, which ticked people off. For instance, the physiological components that are needed for language to even happen is not evolutionary. There's three major parts of your body that had to evolve at the exact same time. The larynx, the subarachnoid vocal tract, in other words, your vocal muscles, and your subglottal system. None of them have any purpose outside of working with the other two. So the idea that they just went and it happened in human beings is crazy. Um, the only, uh, are the only place we can find all three of these is in homo sapien remains. So somehow or another, there's this major leap that happened from whatever breeds of, of ape and gorilla were over here to homo sapiens suddenly have these three things that apes and gorillas didn't really have. And apes and gorillas don't develop language systems. We've taught some of them sign language, 
but that's largely like teaching a dog to sit when they want a treat. It's not that hard to do. Noam Chomsky, one of the top linguists and atheists, as far as we know, he's an atheist, summed it up well when he stated this, quote, um, human language appears to be a unique phenomena. Without significant analog in the animal world, there's no reason to suppose that the gaps are bridgeable. There is no more of a basis for assuming an evolutionary development here than there is from breathing to walking. That's Noam Chomsky uh, in Language and Mind make a, a Journal out of New York. Another miracle of language is that not only did we develop those three organs, we also developed an ear for tone and sound that's incredible. Humans sing. And we're not talking bird chirps like, hey, this is my territory singing. We're talking about complex mathematical structures that get built into a song with rhythm and cadence. We're the only creature on this planet that does this. It's one of the chief differentiators between humans and animals. Historically, language isn't evolving. So the argument that it evolves is not the case. So the Linguistic, the linguistic Society of America this is because the Americans didn't really want to listen to the French, um, say this, as far back as we have written records of human language, 5,000 years or so we have written language of humans, ba things basically look the same. Languages have changed gradually over time, sometimes due to changes in culture and fashion, sometimes in response to contact with other languages, but the basic architecture and expression of the power of language has stayed the exact same. Actually, according to Susan Elgin, she makes another argument, language is digressing over time. The most ancient languages for which we have written tests, this is a quote, Sanskrit, for example, are often far more intricate and complicated in their grammatical forms than many contemporary languages. In fact, let's take this as we go. In English, we have zero noun forms, or we have one. A noun is a noun. We have different verb forms, but we only have, it's hard for us to even understand this speaking English. Nouns are just nouns to us. We don't have forms of nouns. But in German, there's four different forms of nouns. So the way you say the noun makes a difference. In Greek, an older language, there's five different forms of nouns. In Latin, an older language, there's six different forms of noun. In Sanskrit, there's eight different forms for every noun. It's crazy, but the further back you go, the more complex languages are. They actually get simplified over time. We are getting stupider. <laughs> Geographically, we have problems with language. Quinton D. Accident, a biologist from uh, New Zealand, writes this in 2013. Atkinson, uh, he actually focused in on phenomes, or phonemes? Phenomes? I don't know. It's a linguist thing. Uh, of over 500 different languages, and he applied a mathematical formula to all of the 500 languages that he studied. And what he discovered is that the fewer number of phenomes survived actually seemed to have a starting point. In other words, if you find and zone in on languages, the most complex languages, or phenomes are the noises we make. So that each language, you have so many different sounds. So A, B, C, D, E, and E can be E, E, uh, so E has three different phenomes. That's what a phenome is. The most complex languages are actually in Africa, and the least complex languages actually spread out from Africa and the Middle East. So the least complex languages are the furthest ones away from the Middle East and Africa. In other words, according to Atkinson, 
His findings challenge a long-held belief by linguistics that the origin of spoken, spoken language only dates back some 10,000 years. That's a brief summary of 200 years of linguistic studies, and the Bible says them in about three sentences. So what we've discovered is what the Bible said in the first place in chapter 10. God did it. God spread them out. They started from here. But there's more. There's also some honest scientists out there that just admit this. So in 2003, this is Harob, Thompson, and Miller. Organic evolution has proven unable to elucidate the origin of languages and communications. No, this is what you get when a prof teaches the Bible, by the way. Knowing how proven, un, oh, I'm sorry, knowing how beneficial this ability is to humans, one would wonder why this skill has not evolved in other species. In science fiction, we have animals talking all the time. Materialistic science is insufficient at explaining not only how speech came about, but also why we have so many languages. Linguistic research combined with neurological studies, by the way, what happens in the brain when we talk is crazy, has determined that human speech is highly dependent on neural, neural, neuronal networks located in specific sites within the brain. This intricate arrangement of neurons and the anatomical components necessary for speech cannot be reduced in such a way that one would produce a transitional form of communication. In other words, language couldn't have evolved. It just can't, because the brain had to be ready for it. It's like he's listening. Here's the best theory of all from the secular world, and I had to share this one. This is Peter Russell. On the other hand, when we consider the origin of modern languages, there does seem to be a gap, a missing link. Could it be that visiting extraterrestrials noticed that we were beginning to use language and decided the time was right to introduce us to a sophisticated language with complex grammar systems? It could be that something other than humans taught us how to talk. That's a plausible explanation that a good scientist is saying, the evidence doesn't show it, we have to look at what's plausible. I mean, let's go Sherlock Holmes on this. So it is one of those chief arguments. And again, this is why I love the book of Genesis. The Bible provides a clear purpose for languages too. Not only do we get what happened, God explains why we have different languages. So better than the scientific world, we don't, not only do we get an explanation, we get a, a reason for that happening on earth. And the reason is this, it successfully spreads people out on the planet. It gets us 700, there's 7,000 more years on the planet before we see us getting united by digital translators, which we're just seeing in our generation. This is the first generation where I can go to any country in the world, I can take my little camera and look at a menu and know what I'm ordering. Have you ever used the camera translators? They also have audio translators where I can hear people in different languages and I don't need someone interpreting as much anymore. These are developing quickly as we create mathematical formulas to code our language systems and then translate them, which means language has a complete complexity that can be mapped. So linguists get pretty excited about the fact that it's all coded, it all makes sense, and you can actually do it. Just talking to Siri shows how, human, how far humans have come in voice recognition and analysis. We are very close to not having languages on this planet anymore. We'll just speak and people will understand. Verse eight, so the Lord scattered them abroad. He's gonna do his will. It doesn't matter what humans are gonna do. Miracles generally happen when humans have gone so far down a path and God wants us back on path for Messiah. And we're gonna see that throughout 
the Old Testament. When humans go this way, when Jonah wants to go to Tarshish, God puts him in a whale and gets him back where he wants him because it's part of God's plan that the Ninevites hear the message of God. Not the Jews, the Ninevites. God loves the world and he wants the message that he loves them to get out to people. I just want to be there. When Christ is coming into Jerusalem and the Pharisees are saying, why do you let these people worship you? You're not God. And Jesus says, actually, at this point in history, if the people didn't worship me, the rocks would cry out. Like there'd be a crazy miracle here if these people weren't doing it. You would all be really freaked out, you know, but God's going to do his will. His plan is the unmovable thing in the universe. Um, and his plan's going to work throughout history, regardless of what, whether or not humans worship him. First Chronicles 1, 17 through 27, Luke 3, 34 through 36 are both genealogies that are going to use the Abraham to Noah link that we're going to read in verse 10. And I'm just going to read through this. So we're actually getting close to done. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old. Again, we're kind of repeating the genealogy of Shem, but this time we see a direct line from Shem to Abraham. And that's just like we saw a line from Adam to Noah. Now we're going to see one that goes from Shem, which is Noah's son, all the way to um, Abraham. This genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100, 100 years old and begot Aphraxad two years after the flood. After he begot Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. Lots of people we're not going to mention. Arphaxas lived 35 years and begot Salah. And he begot Salah and Arphaxas lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Salah lived 30 years and begot Eber. So it seems like people mature at the same rate. They get to be about 30 and they're making kids. They begot Eber and he begot Eber and Salah lived 400 years and three and begot sons and daughters. Eber, and that's where we get the word Hebrew, lived 34 years and begot Pegleg. And, a, and after he, he begot Pegleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. Pegleg lived 30 years and begot Ru. And he, after he begot Ru, Pegleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Ru lived 32 years and begot Serug and, and begot Serug. And Ru lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Serug lived 30 years and begot Nahor and begot Nahor and Serug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah and after he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years. Notice the years are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in the native land of Ur of the Chaldeans. Chaldeans is kind of the Tigris-Euphrates area. Ur has actually been excavated, so now we're getting to a point in the Bible where we have excavations, we have archaeological evidence. Ur actually had a library. Uh, we know from that library that it was completely idolatrous. The Babylonians completely created their own religions. They transformed all of the astrological things to be Babylonian uh, pantheons of gods, uh, which are roughly mirrored by the Greeks and the Romans, which we study in elementary school. That's when we actually start teaching religion. Terra hesitates is the word. Uh, Terra actually means to hesitate, uh, which might have been, but delays in leaving when he's told to leave later on. Both chapter 5 and chapter 11 end with one of the patriarchs, Noah in chapter 5. And here we see chapter 11 ending with uh, Abraham. Uh, and again, I pointed this out earlier, but it's interesting to know that if you go from Adam to Abraham, you really only need four generations because Terah uh, lives to actually meet Isaac, 
when he's 20, you know, Isaac would have been 25 when Terah died. Um, the word Abram actually means father in the Hebrew, and he's going to be the father of the Jewish people. Abraham is going to be, um, throughout the Old Testament, a third of the book of Genesis is going to focus in on Abraham. So when we get to the end of chapter 11 here, we're actually at a major like dividing point in the book of Genesis. Notice we kind of started a new uh, tolda with that, so this is the genealogy of. Um, like Noah, Abraham seems to follow God and make a covenant with him. And I thought this was kind of a cool thought. God seems to make about a million people before he finds one that he loves. And when Solomon is talking in his wisdom about the people that you meet in life, Solomon says, there's one good man in every 1,000 people you meet. And that seems to be about how God sees the earth too. You can have millions of people on this planet, but very few of them say, God, I just want to serve you. I just want my life to be a life that is your, yours to use however you want. And you think of how rare people like us are on the planet, and that number still holds pretty true. And you can go through all this Old Testament stuff and you just flap through all these names until you get to Abraham. Now, Abraham, he's worth talking about. And I always think when I die, it doesn't matter what I do in life or what skyscrapers I build, I want it to be like, and then there's Sean. And Sean was a guy that I liked to hang out with. Like, he, we would talk. We would walk together. He would actually go for walks in the woods and listen for my voice. And that's what God loves when he looks at people. He doesn't care what we accomplish, what we do, how much we get paid. Do we try to commune and covenant with God or not? Because at the end of days, when the book is written, that's all that matters. All those names I just flopped through and mispronounced, who cares? They didn't walk with God. They didn't serve God. And we see Abraham getting appearing on the scene in the middle of a city that we know is completely idolatrous. Even Abraham's dad would have been idolatrous. Abraham probably grew up idol serving a pantheon of gods in Ur because that's the family he grew up in. Verse 29, then Abraham and Nair, anyways, I thought that was a cool thought. You know, we don't have, we also don't have to be born into a Christian family or to Christian parents to actually serve the Lord. And there's no evidence in the Bible that that's a requirement. You can just as a human being say, I want to serve the Lord. And that's what I want to do with my life. Verse 29, then Abraham and Nair took wives. The name of Abraham, Abram's wife was Sarah, which means contentious. Not a, I don't, we still name people Sarah because it has a better connotation now. But back then it just kind of meant dripping faucet. And the name of Nair's, and I wonder if that was a real name or if it's just what Abram called her after they got married. But this is my wife, Dripping Fawcett. She's contentious. She argues with me. This is my argue. This is, I'm Abram, and this is arguer. Um, the name of nah Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of uh, Iscah. But Sarah was barren, and she had no child. Think of the irony that every time Abram met people, maybe the reason he made fun of his wife and called her contentious is because his name was father, and he didn't have any kids. What a horrible name to have to live with. Um, and he got old. He got to the point where he didn't think he was going to have kids. And we'll see that here in, I think, the next chapter or the one after. Then Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Herod, and his daughter-in-law Sarah and his son Abram's wife. And they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. And so the days of Terah were 245 and Terah died in Haran. 
Uh, Joshua and Joshua chapter 24 verse 2 actually mentions Terah. Uh, Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. So Joshua actually seems to imply that this family was not Jewish. Um, they didn't start that way. Describes Abram before the Lord called him. He's from a family of these idol worshippers. So God actually had to intervene in this family to bring them out of this environment. And Abraham was open to that intervention. Terah was supposed to, um, but delayed on it. And we have that same choice. We have a choice that we can be called out of our lives, no matter where we were born or what our family thinks. We actually are called out. Frankly, I think if you're here sitting here listening to the words, because God put something in your heart that you wanted to hear the word. And he calls us into that position where we want to hear the word, and then he speaks to us, and we're called to do things. He has a plan for our lives, just like he has a plan for Abraham's life. God wakes us up out of worshiping the things of this world and worshiping ourselves. And those are the two things that everyone I've ever met in my entire life, they worship one of three things, themselves, stuff in this world, or God. And the ones that worship God have a light in them that I can't deny, and it drives me to Christ because I see that. I don't care what's in the world. It's going to fade when I die. And I don't want to worship myself because I know myself. I'm not worthy of worship, right? We have an amazing choice then when we hear the call of God. What's God calling you to do? What do you have to hold back on? And what reason do you have in anything on this planet? Why wouldn't you serve God when he calls you? And in that sense, when we come back and we pick up in Genesis 12, we're going to see the call of God on Abraham's life. And the first person in the Bible, really, that he calls out of something to do something and makes a promise to Abraham and kind of, we get to see Abraham a little more of his life and a little more of a picture. Noah, God pretty much said, build an ark because I don't want you dead, right? And Noah faithfully obeyed him. Abraham's another champion of the faith that gets mentioned in Hebrews 11. Uh, and we're going to see why, what he was so faithful about um, and how he becomes the father of the, um, the father of the Jewish people. So with that, let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for your gift. Lord, we thank you that in your books, you keep track of everything. Um, you know where things happen, Lord. If we just believe your word, we could have saved 200 years of linguistic studies. Um, a lot of time and money that goes into that, Lord. And, and we, um, we thank you, Lord, that we have this opportunity to open up the Bible and hear from you as to how things happened and your side of that story. Uh, Lord, we thank you that uh, you created a world just so you could find those that would walk with you that given all the free will that we have, we would give up our lives, Lord, to serve you. And Lord, we don't even do that on our own. We need your grace. We need your Holy Spirit to even do that. But Lord, take our small seed of faith and help it to grow. Help our ears to hear the voice that you have for us, irregardless of our families and our friends and the things of this world. Help us to hear you clearly and distinctly. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.